bringing you the latest in tax credit news. This is Tax Credit Tuesday with your host, Michael Novogratik. Hello, I'm Michael Novogratik, and this is Tax Credit Tuesday. This is the Tuesday, October 12th, 2021 podcast. Today's podcast is a must listen for all developers, owners, and investors who work with the Low Income Housing Tax Credit. I say that because we're going to discuss a major announcement from the U.S. Census Bureau that so far has flown under the radar, but it will have significant adverse effects on near-term income and rent limits for affordable housing rental properties. So what is the magnitude of that adverse effect? Well, if you're a property manager or owner, I ask you to take a moment to think what you're currently projecting for rental growth for the year 2023. You're projecting 2%, 3%, 4% maybe? Well, Whatever your current estimate is, now decrease that or lower that amount by 3.5%. That means a 4% expected increase would now be half a percent. A 2% increase would become a 1.5% decrease. Why? Well, the U.S. Census Bureau announcement that has flown under the radar so far is that roughly 80%, slightly more, of areas for which income and rent limits are released in 2023 will see a 3.5% lower change in area median incomes. This means that of about 2,000 of the 2,500 areas where income limits are released, they would see a decrease on average of 3.5%. Now, as if that wasn't bad enough, it is actually worse. And that's because of the 30 largest metropolitan areas in the United States, that would be those with over 2.1 million residents, they will see an average decrease of nearly 5%, with San Francisco leading the way with a near 9% decrease. To this end, we at Novogratik have formed an income limits working group to better assess the short and longer term effects of the census announcement and, most importantly, develop some possible policy options for HUD and our Congress to consider. In today's podcast, we're going to break down in detail how the census announcement will affect 2023 income limits, that is, will affect them absent policy changes. We'll also discuss the effects on 2023 income limits on low-income housing tax credit properties, most particularly the qualifying income levels and rent levels. And then, most importantly, as part of this podcast, we're going to share our initial thoughts as to what property owners, managers, and underwriters should do, given this that we've discussed so far. Now, joining me for this discussion is my partner and income limits expert, Thomas Dagg. The last time Thomas was on the podcast was in April. Then we discussed our expectations as to how the COVID pandemic caused recessions, job losses, and switching more to working from home, how those changes could affect income and rent limits for low-income housing tax credit properties. At that time, we were expecting greater than usual variations in 2023 income limits. Now, I keep saying 2023, and that's because, generally speaking, income limits are based on data collected three years earlier and then adjusted forward by CPI. Now, we expected some areas to have large increases, as others to have large decreases in income limits, depending upon the residency of families in a given area and the impacts of the COVID pandemic. What we weren't sure about was what the overall aggregate changes in income would be. That's probably the view that many of you, our listeners, had before tuning into today's podcast. Most of our listeners were probably thinking it's going to be a rocky road with a lot of uncertainty as to whether a given property will have increased or decreased or flat rents. Well, now we know that in over 80% of areas, it appears that in 2023, qualifying rent and income levels and maximum rents will be approximately 3.5% lower than expected. The potential significance of this cannot be overstated. Now, this situation does remind me of the re-benchmarking that occurred over 10 years ago. 
For those around during that time, you will recall what happened. For those newer to the long housing tax credit space, please take a walk down memory lane with me. Now, prior to the start of the annual American Community Survey, income surveys were only completed every 10 years as part of the decennial census. To estimate the growth in income between census years, HUD used a combination of Bureau of Labor Statistics, earnings and employment data, and census median family income data. The release of the 2000 census data many years ago revealed that the annual increases in area median incomes since the prior census in 1990 had been too high. As a consequence, HUD had to set new area median income level amounts at levels that were lower than the previous year. This was referred to as rebenchmarking. The net result was a decrease in median incomes on average of 3.6%. At the time, it looked like many properties wouldn't see rental income increases for several years, as incomes would need to increase enough to exceed the level of income before the rebenchmarking. Now, fortunately, this situation did lead to a statutory provision contained in the Housing and Income Recovery Act of 2008 that did create a special rule for rent calculations for certain properties so they could still see some rent increases. Now, let's get back to the current situation. Now, the good news is that the recent census announcement doesn't appear to have the longer term and expansive multi-year compounded effects that the rebenchmarking would have had, but for the statutory changes that were enacted. Now, the bad news is that the recent census announcement is very similar to the head rebenchmarking situation and will have some notable, dramatic, and expansive shorter to midterm impacts. This is, of course, absent any regulatory and or statutory changes. But I am getting ahead of myself. Uh, I've said a lot here so far. In short, I'll just say this is significant for the near-term operation of low-income housing tax credit properties. We have a lot to unpack, so if you're ready, let's get started. So Thomas, thank you very much for joining us on the podcast again. Yeah, thanks, Mike. Happy to be back. I can't think of anyone else that we could in the country that we'd want to have on to discuss this issue than you. Uh, that's not just within Novogratic, that's within the entire country to discuss this uh, issue. Now, in our last guest appearance on the podcast in April of this year, uh, you did provide a detailed explanation as to how income and rent limits are determined for low-income and tax credit properties. But I don't want to go into as much detail as you did before in that episode, because I want to focus on the issue at hand. Our listeners who are interested in a more detailed explanation can go back and listen uh, to that podcast. But I do think some level setting is needed. So I do ask that you provide our audience a high level overview as to how income and rent limits are usually, emphasis on usually, determined. Yeah, great. So HUD starts when determining income limits for tax rent projects. We always start with area median income, which I'll refer to as AMI. The calculation of AMI starts with this American Community Survey that you've already alluded to. But due to the timing of the release of the survey results of the American Community Survey, HUD generally uses the ACS, American Community Survey, that is from three years prior to the income limit year. So for example, for 2021, income limits were based on the 2018 ACS. And then to grow that 2018 number four to 2021, we use a CPI adjustment. And so this has always been the, this has been the pattern for the last few years that we take uh, historical ACS data and trend it forward. And typically that ACS data is the one-year American Community Survey for most metropolitan areas. If HUD is unable to obtain a reliable one-year ACS for an area, they default to the five-year American Community Survey. So now let's go to the big reveal. <laughs> so the 2023 uh, 
you know, written income limit information will be based on 2020 survey data under the typical rule, as you just explained. Well, what was the announcement that the Census Bureau made with respect to 2020 survey data that's going to have such an impact on income and rent limits in 2023? Yeah, long story short on that, they said, we will not be releasing a one-year American Community Survey. Uh, and this is due to data limitations. Specifically, the Census Bureau stated that their staff found a high non-response rate from people of lower income, lower education attainment, and who are less likely to own their own home. And so HUD, when they were, or Census, when they were looking at this data they collected, they saw this big hole in the data and they said, we just don't have enough information here to publish a one-year uh, survey results. But what's interesting is they continue on to say that, but we think across the five-year period covered by the five-year survey results, we do have enough information to publish a statistically reliable five-year survey. And so they won't publish a one-year, but they are likely going to publish a five-year for this same period. So uh, what are the implications then? So there's not one-year data. So the 2023 income limits can't be based on the one-year data. So presumably the 2023 income limits would be based on the five-year data. Yeah, exactly. So HUD, yeah, so HUD's playbook is if we don't have a reliable one-year survey to use the five-year survey. And so when you switch from the one-year to a five-year survey, we, we start to, what's interesting is they don't do any kind of effort to weight the different years of responses. All the responses received in that five-year period are given the same weight. So if we're looking at 2020, it'd be the five-year survey window that covers 2016, 17, 18, 19, and 20. And so all responses in that five-year window are given the same weight. And we kind of took a step back and said, well, if we've been in a, in a time when income limits have generally been increasing, using a five-year average is going to end up in a with a lower uh, one-year number than, than the one-year survey would, right? The five-year average is going to be lower than the one-year. That was our hypothesis. And so we thought we should probably test this hypothesis before we uh, kind of go widespread with this. So what we did is we took the, we, we went and selected the, the 330 MSAs, so metropolitan statistical areas. We went out and pulled the five-year and one-year ACS data for the last three years for those. There's 330 MSAs in the country. And what we found is over the last five years, the uh, comparing year to year, so the 2019 five-year to the 2019 one-year, the 2018 five-year to the 2018 one-year, looking at the difference between those that on average, the five-year was 3.71% lower than the one-year. And in all but, it, so in 82% of the areas, when we look at this, we'd say the, the one year is greater than the five year for 82% of the areas. And as we talked about before this call, uh, it's even worse for large areas. <laughs> uh, if we looked at the, as you mentioned up top, if we looked at the 30 largest areas, there wasn't a single area where the five year was higher than the one year. And so what this means is you would see a decrease in income because of this switch. To give a very simple example, if your area had a median income that was $100,000 using the one-year ACS data, and then if we switch to the five-year ACS data, that means that your median income would be 3.5% lower. So we're going to call that $96,500. And then if we went and said, well, that's great. I understand that, that decrease, but what does that mean for a tax credit property? If we translate that into tax credit rent limits, that project, a two-bedroom unit in that project would go from having a rent limit of $1,350 to a rent limit of $1,303, a $47 decrease. And we'll talk a little bit more about hold harmless and the implication of that later on, but 
kind of all things being equal, the rent limit for that area would fall by three and a half percent or $47 on a two bedroom unit. So if we just unpack the five versus one year a little bit. So the one year data for 2023, if there was one year data, that would be the 2020 data and it would be adjusted upward by CPI to get to a 2023 income limit. Is that accurate? That, that's correct. Right. And then if you take if instead there's no 2020 data, so instead, you know, had or there's a release of the five year data for 2020. And as you noted, it's an average, it's the data over the five years, not weighted by years or increased by CPI or anything else. It's the, so the raw numbers for five years. Does that five-year data in 2020 then get increased by CPI to get to 2023 or not? Correct. But that CPI adjustment would be the same. So you'd be starting with a lower amount because you have to use the five-year, but you'd right. still get the same adjustment. And right. they would still be adjusting that, although that data collect over that five-year period could theoretically be seen as you know, a 2018 and a half year data, and they're not going to trend from 2018 and a half to 2023. They're going to trend from 2020 to 2023. Right. No, as we discussed uh, preparing for the podcast, you know, most areas do expect to have annual income increases so they can have annual rent increases. So almost by definition, you know, most areas when you have to look back over the five previous years, you know, should have lower uh, income levels than the one year, absent some economic shock or areas where, you know, incomes are declining uh, and there's other uh, adverse conditions. But let's talk about some specific areas. I mean, I mentioned uh, over 2,000 of the over 2,500 areas, you know, would fall into this 3.5% reduction. Um, and you noted, uh, as I did in the intro, that of the 30 most populous uh, areas in the country, you know, the average uh, reduction is much more than that. Uh, maybe talk about a, a few examples in terms of cities, in terms of what the numbers would mean. Uh, we obviously can't do uh, <laughs> all of them, but you could give a few examples that you think are instructive for listeners to start to mentally walk through the impact of this potentially. Yeah, the first example I picked was Fort Collins, Colorado, because it had nice round numbers. For 2019, the one-year ACS was right around $100,000, and the five-year ACS was $92,000. So you can see exactly what we're talking about by this 8% decrease. You're going to be dropping your, your income limits from being based on $100,000, dropping down to being based on $92,000. So that's about an 8.5% delta. And that, again, as we know from the tax credit projects, your rent limits are based on income limits. So not only is it going to be harder for tenants to qualify now, your rents that you can charge are going to be 8.5% lower. A couple of other areas kind of picking across the country, looking at these top markets, Atlanta, very similar. It had about a 6% decrease between the five-year and the one-year. And Phoenix as well had about a 4.6% decrease. And those are going to track out these decreases that we're talking about. That would track all the way out, not just to income, but also to your rent limit because your rent limits are based on the income limits. So this is uh, obviously interesting and, and as we continue to try to unpack the significance of this, there's obviously a geographic distribution as we kind of discussed. Uh, and I know you're getting lots of calls from clients who are asking you to review the impact of them on uh, various developments. Uh, but there's also, in terms of looking at it beyond looking at it geographically, how about projects that are in service versus those that are under development, under construction? How might this difference impact uh, that those two maybe broad categories of LIHTC properties? Yeah, so let's first start with those that are in service, because that's obviously the largest population of projects. 
And so once you're in service, if the limits were to decrease, you'd be held harmless. And so even if you, you know, going back to your initial example, where you're saying if you were predicting a 3% increase or a 2% increase, now you'd be predicting a 1.5% decrease. Well, that 1.5% decrease, you'd be held harmless. So you'd have flat rents for this period and flat income limits for qualifying tenants. But of course, utility allowances are likely increasing, as are your expenses. So you'll be getting squeezed. Your net income, obviously, is going to decrease even though your gross income has stayed flat. But then the question from that becomes, well, how long will this issue persist for these in-service projects? Are we gonna be flat? Like you talked about with re-benchmarking where we predicted some areas be flat for eight years, or is this going to be something that's going to rebound rather quickly? And that's kind of a two-part answer in my opinion. The first part we have to understand is how quickly we'll be back to having a one-year survey. Do we think that for 2021, you'll be able to collect enough data for a one-year survey. And the reason why they couldn't collect this data again is because they didn't feel comfortable sending their census workers out to follow up on the surveys and go door to door and track those down. And I'm not sure the conditions in 2021 have improved enough that, that they're being sent out to collect the data. So it could very easily be a two-year issue that would impact both 2020 and 2024. But what's interesting then is, so we say, okay, we, we kind of have this 3.5% decrease in 2023, but that five-year, you know, over time, the five-year average is going to increase as much as the one year. It's just a little bit laggy, right, as we kind of work through some old years burn off and new years come on. And so you'll likely have moderate increases if you're in an increasing area from 23 to 24. So it's not going to be this long period of flat. And then once we do get back to having a reliable one-year survey, there's going to be somewhat of a snapback, right? Where we have this big increase because we've been using a, a lower number for a few years. Now we get to jump back up to the one-year. And so that's the first part. Is there going to be some sort of how long is that going to last? Depends on when we'll get good data back from census. And then the other part of it is the timing of that will be interesting because do we get good data from census for all areas at the same time? Or are they only able to get good data for large areas at first? Um, and so we might see it hitting different areas at different times. And the concern is, if it hits different areas at different time, is we have an increase on income limits in any given year. They cannot increase by more than the greater of 5% or two times the change in national median income. So if you're, if you're a trailing project and you get to use the one year later than everybody else, your snapback might be limited by that increase. Now, I think that if everybody snapbacks, snapbacks in the same year is what I'm calling it when we switch from this five-year back to the one-year. If everybody snapbacks in the same year, well, yeah, then your national median income should have a similar snapback and your cap's going to be quite large. But it'll be interesting to see how all that plays out and all that's going to determine how long before we kind of snap back here. I would just also note that, you know, obviously, you know, you, if there is a large snapback and, it, and it's allowable under... Uh, the rules and the guidance and limits put in place by HUD, there could still be obviously local rent control limits and others that limit the ability to increase the rents. And also, you know, there's only such a, a, a tenant can only afford a certain percentage increase. So it's not as if those increases are necessarily going to be realized in a given year. So I think the, the long and the short of it is, you know, it's a given that it's a one, it would be a one-year issue absent policy changes, and it's likely several years <laughs> that could be different across properties across the country. Does that make sense? Yep, I agree with that completely. Okay. 
So how about projects that, so that I think addresses the general effect on properties in service. I don't know if there's any more you wanted to say about that or if you wanted to move on now to you know, projects that are in development or under construction. Yeah, let's talk about the in development uh, projects now. And it kind of depends where you're at in the pipeline. Uh, as we know, once you've received an allocation of credits or bonds, we have this gross rent floor. So your rent might be held harmless. You might be similar to what we've talked about for existing projects. But if you're a project that is kind of still a brainchild of a developer and isn't going to apply for credits till 2023, or you've already uh, applied for credits, you won't be placed in service till 2023, you could see this impact on your rent limits if you aren't at a point yet where you have your gross rent floor fixed. And you might see this and you'll definitely see it on income limits, right? Because gross rent floor only protects you on the rent side. But if income limits decline, that might impact your ability to lease up units, might impact your occupancy. Um, and I think we're going to talk a little bit more about this later, but knowing that might kind of change when you decide to apply for credits and when you push to maybe get a project placed in service because you want to be ahead of the release of these 2023 limits so you can make sure you're grandfathered in. We'll talk more about what I mean with that, but that's kind of a sneak preview of things to be thinking about. So is it at this point, is it a given that all areas will be using five-year data in 2023? So I wouldn't say it's a given. If we follow the standard HUD playbook, that's what they would likely use. Now, HUD has uh, changed and adopted their income calculations to fit the circumstances, right? When thinking back to what we talked about with rebenchmarking, shortly after the rebenchmarking was when the American Community Survey started. And HUD said, oh, this is a much better process than using a 10-year census and trying to use all these complicated statistics to grow it. And, and they made a very common sense choice to say, let's use the American Community Survey data. And so we're hopeful that through discussions that maybe we can find a, a common sense approach here. And then as a reminder, there are a small subset of projects that are called high housing cost area. Uh, well, a small subset of areas that are high housing cost areas. There are about 2% of the areas in the country that their income and rent limits are based on fair market rents. So those areas likely will not have this uh, large decrease that we're talking about because they'll continue to use fair market rents for that calculation. Great, thank you for that. Um, and I know that's what the Income Limits Working Group that you're leading is uh, working through what some of those recommendations might be. More about that in a moment. So that's uh, very helpful in terms of bifurcating the impacts on owners of existing properties and properties under development. But maybe we can move into action items now. <laughs> so beyond joining our Income Limits Working Group <laughs> to influence what the policy is, uh, you know, what should an owner of an existing property be doing now from an action on perspective, given the news, if they're just now learning about this on the podcast? Yeah. So as we talked about, it's always important to understand that rents and incomes are area specific and project specific. And so it's really important that you're revisiting your rent projections and understanding and stress testing how your project can withstand these potential decreases. And so we don't have the data right now to start running 2023 five-year or 2023 estimates based on five-year ACS. The five-year ACS will likely be released in December. So after December, you should be reaching out to get project-specific rent projections. And hopefully these will be the worst-case scenario because hopefully we'll prevail and, and convince HUD or Congress to use some sort of different method in calculating 2023. But these will give you some worst-case scenario benchmarks to start working into your projections to say, well, okay, if incomes are now going to fall by 3% in our area, does that mean I need to hold income flat for my project for three years? And what does that do to my budget? What do I need to be thinking about now so that I can withstand that coming storm? 
And so just this, yeah. with respect to those properties, if they didn't want to wait until December, could they take the 2019 data and just maybe average, you know, the four year, <laughs> take the four years and then and then take that data and say, okay, you know, I have a rough estimate subject to the layering in of one more year. Yeah, it's funny. That's exactly what I wanted to do. I wanted to take the ACS for 2016, 17, 18, 19. And just make a guess as what's going to happen to my project in or my area in 2015 and have this adjustment factor on top. The issue is that the math doesn't quite work out because when HUD's calculating the five-year, they're not averaging each of the one years. So they're looking at all the surveys received during those periods. And we've tried to reverse engineer how we get from a one-year to a five-year. And it's not as simple as taking our one years and dividing by five. But it does tell us our trend, right? And so if you're typically trending up across those four years and you think the fifth year is going to trend similarly, yeah, that can be where you start benchmarking. Say, okay, I think that the trend is showing I'm going to go up by 4%. Now, if I look at the five-year average because of that, that's a 3.5% decrease. Then I'd look at that. You can also uh, join the working group. We sent out our... That we sent out the data for the last three years and showed what the change in the five-year to the one-year for each area was. So you can start looking at specific areas and say, oh, for this area, it's eight and a half percent difference. So I probably need to be uh, predicting right. a much larger decrease. Uh, so right. it's all about collecting as much data as you can, right? We have a lot of different data sources. We don't have that single source of truth and knowledge now, but we have a lot of data points that can help us direct how much of a variance we should be kind of predicting for our area. So that's good advice for those with existing properties from a budgeting perspective and anticipating, you know, whatever repair, you know, that as they're kind of looking at their operations to build a, you know, make, take whatever necessary steps they have to take now uh, to deal with this potential consequence. How about for properties under development or under construction? They haven't been placed in service yet, or they're leasing or, or leased up, but the permanent loan hasn't closed yet. Uh, what would you, what advice would you give them as to how to deal with this situation? Yeah, so all the advice I just gave would also be true of these projects, right? But we have some more nuances here because if you're not in service yet, you haven't technically affixed your hold harmless level. Hold harmless uh, affixes to a project once you're in service. And so for projects that are in the process of being developed or even new projects, you really should be setting a target of getting one building in service prior to April of 2023. Now, technically, we have a 45-day grace period, so we, I guess we could say May 15th. But you really want to get one building in service before that so that you're held harmless at these 2022 levels and you don't have to drop down to 2023 for your hold harmless. Uh, if you can't do that, then you want to make sure that you are as much as possible, right? We know that projects kind of come online when projects come online. You can't accelerate a, a development schedule by nine months just because I said you should. Um, I wish I had that power. <laughs> um, I think a lot of people would be hiring me for other services if I could do that. Uh, but the other thing is also thinking about the timing of applying, right? So that's gross rent floor that we talked about. The gross rent floor affixes based on the date you receive an allocation or for tax exempt bond projects, the date you receive your credit determination letter. So again, you want to be trying to work with your state agency to get those letters prior to May 15th, 2023, so that you can be held harmless at this level. So this re-benchmarking, it's still... Hurts you because you're going to be flat for a while, but at least you get to be held harmless. If you miss that cutoff, then you have to affix at this lower level and claw back out of it. And then just underwriting, 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 stress testing, stress testing, stress testing, understanding, well, what does it look like if to my perm loan conversion, if I have flat rents, what does it look like if my lease up, if I have to lease at a income limit that's three and a half or 5% lower than what we're estimating? 
So just stress testing all these variables in your project, uh, you know, and working with somebody who understands this impact to maybe do those that modeling for you so that you really understand how this limit, how this can impact your project over the short term and long term. So we've discussed a lot of uncertainties <laughs> uh, and a lot of you know adverse effects. When can we expect to have more data? And when can the the initial sort of estimates that we have now start to become start to come more into focus? Right. So HUD is going to release in November what they're calling one-year experimental data, which I don't think that I'm sorry, Census Bureau, I say HUD. Census Bureau will be releasing in November what they're calling one-year experimental data. And I don't think that HUD is going to use that data because what's happening is Census Bureau is taking that data and they're trying to fill in the gaps by making adjustments to it. But it will be interesting for us to start looking and saying, well, what does 2020 look at overall? Look like overall? Is it generally trending up or down? So we can start getting some kind of information, but also understanding what it would look like if we were able to use a one year. But the key date is going to be in December. That's when we're going to get this five-year ACS data. You know, it covers 2016 through 2020 that we think absent kind of any outside pressure that HUD would likely use. And so then we'll be able to really get into focus how much of an impact this has and what areas are feeling the brunt of it. And this is kind of something interesting on this whole thing is that, you know, this lack of data collection, the brunt of it's going to be filled by the tax credit projects. They had no kind of say in this data collection, but they're going to see this three and a half percent decrease across the board because of this lack of data. But December release will help us start getting into focus what that means, what that means for specific areas. So if you haven't used our estimator in the past, definitely time to think about using that and figure out how it's going to impact your projects and your portfolio. And then of course, joining the working group so we can start shaping this policy. You know, we can start talking about what is what are some alternatives, start running numbers on that to see how that looks and how that would impact the the, uh, the community at large so that we can go to HUD with kind of a, a consensus opinion and have one voice or many voices saying the same thing so that HUD realizes how big of an impact it is, how important it is, and what are some alternatives that we could all agree on. Great. Thank you for that, Thomas. I could discuss income limits with you (laughs) for another uh, half an hour or an hour, but we're running out of time here. Uh, I know a lot of our listeners will want to be reaching out to you uh, to learn more about joining the Income Limits Working Group uh, and uh, get your assistance with respect to assessing uh, the particular areas where they have properties. So maybe you could share your email address uh, with our listeners. Sure. It's thomas.stag, that's T-H-O-M-A-S dot S-T-A-G-G at novoco.com. So thank you very much, uh, Thomas. I'll include your email information in today's show notes as well, uh, which will be posted to novoco.com podcast. Uh, Please do stick around, Thomas, for our off-mic section, where I get to ask you some fun off-topic questions so our uh, audience can get some non-income limits and non-tax credit advice from you. Uh, But to our listeners, uh, please tune in to next week's podcast. My guest will be my partner, George Barlow. Uh, Congress is considering several enhancements and improvements to the historic tax credit. This legislation has potential to affect many existing historic tax credit transactions. In the podcast, I'm going to ask George what advice he's giving his clients regarding steps to take now so their developments are best positioned when, and I'll be positive here and say when, when these enhancements and improvements are passed by Congress and signed into law by the president. You can be sure you're notified of that episode and each week's podcast by following or subscribing to the Tax Credit Tuesday podcast. Go to www.novoco.com slash podcast to subscribe to and to stream the show on our website. You can also follow or subscribe to Tax Credit Tuesday 
on iTunes, Spotify, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, and Radio Public. Now I'm pleased to reach our off-mic section where our listeners uh, get to get some non-tax credit advice uh, from our guests. So I'll start, Thomas, with one of my uh, common questions, and that is, what is a secret talent or hobby that few people know you have and how and why did you first come to develop that skill? Yeah, I first was going to go snowboarding. And I realized that ever since I became a public accountant, that has gone on the back burner because we work crazy hours <laughs> January through April when the snow is there. So I chose instead juggling. And this is a skill I learned a long time ago. I think it's good because it helps when you're juggling, right? You You have to kind of focus on nothing and everything at the same time. And I feel like as a partner in an accounting firm, I'm often doing that where you're focusing on nothing and everything at the same time to make sure that nothing's falling down around you. No, that's a great skill. One of our prior podcast guests had juggling also. And it's also almost a form of meditation. So, <laughs> so there's, a, there's a lot to be said for juggling. So many of us are getting back to traveling. We've had a couple in-person conferences already. They're in-person and live stream. And then next week, we have Opportunity Zones. And then we have New Market Tax Credits. And then we have Renewable Energy Tax Credits. So we have some of our conferences back. So more at Novogratz are traveling. Is there a travel tip that uh, you care to share that you think is a is a must uh, for travelers that they may not be aware of? Yeah. So for me, it's all about cord management. So, and this <laughs> kind of came from an embarrassing situation where I ended up at a client meeting with Mr. Mike Novogratik, and I forgot my power charger for my uh, laptop and had to borrow Mike's. Uh, power charger. So since then, I always keep a separate bag that I never unpack when I get home. I keep my iPhone charger, my computer charger, and my other chargers all in this bag that just stays in my travel bag, and I never take it out, and I never have this kind of battery anxiety as I travel. <laughs> oh, that's very wise. There's a lot to be said if you travel a lot to have your travel bag. <laughs> Don't unpack it when you come home. <laughs> and if there's something you forgot, make sure you put it in the bag the moment you get home. So you'll have it in the next trip. One thing I've also started to do is, is carry, you know, the USB charger that's multi-pronged. So I have uh, three different options. <laughs> so I can only, I, if I carry two or three of these, I can charge three different types of uh, devices because I found myself, if I had a separate one, uh, I find myself not missing the other one. So I uh, appreciate that advice. So the third item and last to get some uh, thoughts from you is what advice you'd give someone starting a career in public accounting? Yeah, I would say it kind of falls under two things. Be curious and read a lot. And so you know, when I started out, we we before we had the Journal of Tax Threats, we had these little pamphlet size things that we publish on a monthly basis. And when I started, I'd take one of those home every time we published it and read it. And when I started, I probably didn't understand half the words I was reading, let alone what it all added up together. But it kind of got topics in my mind that, oh, this is an issue in our industry. And I could read the headline and understand, maybe to understand what the issue was, but I knew there was an issue surrounding that. And so it, it kind of started laying in my mind, okay, here's an issue that I should be aware of if a client mentions it. And then just be real curious as things come out, read it and read as much as you can on it. And I just love when, maybe not so much anymore as I'm getting older, but when I was a new CPA, I loved when new guidance came out because nobody in the firm knew more than me. Nobody had 10 years of a head start on understanding this than I did. And so when something new came out, I could become the expert in that. I could understand it as well as anybody else in the firm. And so look for those opportunities where when something new comes out, try and read everything you can about it and learn everything you can about it so that you can become the expert in it. And as more information piles on top of that, you have this a much better foundation to understand that as, as more guidance comes out. So 
those are my tips for starting out in public accounting. That's great advice uh, to read and sort of be curious and sort of you know ask questions in your own mind. So I really, really like that. Also like the reading part. As you know, when you first start, you know, not as much, you know, a lot of what's being said, maybe you don't fully grasp <laughs> and some of the nuances that are being written into it, you don't fully appreciate. But as you, each time you read it another, every time you read it each month, you learn a little bit more. So I would encourage those listening, uh, our journal of tax credits would, is what those, we used to have something on the local housing tax credit monthly report. We had the new market tax credit monthly report. <laughs> we had these various monthly reports that we were uh, issuing. We said, well, you know, as the credits sort of expanded, we ended up consolidating them all into the journal of tax credits. So I would encourage our listeners to subscribe to the journal of tax credits uh, so you can read about the areas that you do practice. And the Journal of Tax Credits does have more than tax credits. It should be, it's maybe more appropriately the Journal of Tax Incentives because it does have opportunity zones in there and it has a section on HUD. So it's even beyond tax incentives, it's tax incentives and affordable housing. But there's a lot to uh, learn uh, on a monthly basis. And even if you're not as familiar with a lot of the topics, you know, reading it every month, will basically be, you'll get a degree in affordable housing and, and community development and start preservation renewable energy if you do uh, read it every month. So thank you, Thomas, for joining us. Uh, that's it for now. I'm Michael Novogratik. Thanks for listening. This weekly podcast has been brought to you by Novogratik and Company, LLP. Archived podcasts are available online at www.novaco.com forward slash podcast or by subscribing to the Tax Credit Tuesday podcast in iTunes. You can find related links referenced in this podcast in our show notes at www.novaco.com forward slash podcast. Novogratik & Company LLP is a national certified public accounting and consulting firm with offices nationwide. Learn more about our professional services at www.novaco.com.